Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the session, Oh Baby, Putting Reproductive Health on the Global Agenda. We were trying to recruit people to stand out on the walkway there and say, come talk about sex here in the Heinz Room. So I'm uh, really pleased you decided to come and join us this afternoon. Uh, my name is Peggy Clark. I'm the Vice President of Policy Programs at the Institute and the Executive Director of Global Health and Development. We have a wonderful panel here today. You know many of them. Um, and they have actually done another panel here together. So I think they're really, they've gotten into a, into a great uh, rhythm. But in our session today, we're really going to talk about the status of reproductive health globally, whether it is on the global agenda, in what way, what are the challenges, uh, have we made enough progress? What more we can do? And we are really quite honored to have three leading people who have devoted much of their lives to working on this issue. Um, to my right is Nicholas Kristoff. Um, Nicholas Kristoff, you may not know this, he grew up on a sheep and cherry farm near Yamhill, Oregon. He graduated Pi Beta Kappa from Harvard College and then studied law at Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship, graduating with first-class honors. He later studied Arabic in Cairo and Chinese in Taipei. While working in France after high school, he caught the travel bug, and I think he's never looked back. Um, as many of you know, we are um, all uh, really quite um, honored to be able to read his very, very personal uh, stories from all over the world that he um, has been doing with young journalists, in particular in the New York Times. Um, he, Nick and his wife wrote a magnificent book called Half the Sky. I think some of you may have heard about it in the tent the other day. Um, Nick has said that about Half the Sky, that in some ways he wished he had put a different cover on and had at least one triumphant chapter, that his concern was maybe that um, it was too much bad news. And Nick has also said that um, often think tanks, I guess we'll include ourselves in this, are not very good at doing outreach and speaking beyond the choir. So I'd like to challenge us in this session to really get out of policy speak and talk in a very um, direct way about some of these issues. Um, the other thing that, that Nick has said is that Perhaps the most important problem, though, is that family planning got caught up in the culture wars. Originally, many Republicans were big backers of family planning programs. And he notes that Bush was nicknamed Rubbers because of his... The first Bush. The first book, which was, which is, uh, is interesting. So welcome, Nick. We're glad to have you with us. Um, to my far right is a dear friend, Kavita Ramdas. Kavita has been the president and CEO of the Global Fund for Women since 1996. During uh, Kavita's tenure, the Global Fund for Women's assets have increased from $6 million to $21 million. Grant making has risen to $8 million per year. Kavita herself has become an eloquent and brave spokesperson for women all over the world. Um, much of the grant making that Kavita has done has reached uh, grassroots organizations that would not otherwise have uh, received any, any support. Kavita has said that um, when girls and women have greater access to education, not just the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic, but the three C's of courage, contraception, and choice, this leads to improved outcomes all, uh, through the, for the whole community. So welcome, Kavita. Thank you. And to my left is Anne Veneman. We're also very honored to have Anne with us today, and I've really enjoyed spending time with you here at Ideas. Um, Anne Veneman is the former executive director of UNICEF, the largest organization in the world working on uh, children's issues. She held that position from 2005 to 2010. 
Previously, she was the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, the first and only woman to hold that position. She also served as um, the fifth executive director of UNICEF. She's a lawyer by training. Um, she's been a public defender. And Anne Veneman, some of you may not have known, partnered with Eve Ensler um, around the V-Day uh, effort, and they mounted a campaign around sexual abuse and violence of women against women, which is an issue that's very near and dear to Anne's heart. So welcome, Anne. So thank you very much, and um, let me make an announcement. I should have made it before that. This uh, session is being um, recorded for Minnesota Public Radio with our colleague here on the, on the left. So if you could please turn off your cell phones, if you could just take a moment to do that now, that's quite important. Um, and then when we take Q&A, which will save about 20 minutes to the end, we will use the standing mic, and so you can line up into the back there and speak into the microphone um, for your questions. And my colleague from Minnesota Public Radio has said that he, we can swear or talk about sex as much as we want because he can edit out if you use <laughs> bad words. <laughs> so uh, he encourages you to, um, to have it not limit your participation this afternoon. So good. So without further ado, let me get started. I'd like to start with Kavita. And um, Kavita, what I want you to share with the group is, is an answer to this question. What in your life personally and what about you personally has made this issue of reproductive health so important to you? Um, I think uh, if you're born as the eldest of three girls into a family in India and from the age of um, as early as I can remember, you've had uh, uncles and aunts pat you on the head and say, oh, um, only three daughters. Well, you're still young, turning to my mother. You could try for a boy. Um, you learn fairly early that the value of being a female human being on this earth somehow, for some reasons, doesn't equate in the same way as being a, being a boy. But I think for me, as a more adult understanding of, of my passion about reproductive health and uh, reproductive rights came from my very first job, which was as a 19-year-old interim executive director of an orphanage in, um, in New Delhi. Um, I saw young baby girls um, abandoned, often with the placenta still on them, um, in the cradle that was, um, in India you can just leave a baby on the cradle and it rings a bell on the inside of the orphanage. Um, it was a pretty shattering experience and I, and I um, also had the opportunity to talk to some of the young women who had um, abandoned their children um, and the sense of pressure that they had, the lack of control that they had over the choices um, their sense that they were failures for not having produced a male son, and their sense of inability to control their own reproductive health um, was so profound and was, uh, was such a profound um, experience for me that I, I, I figured out that there must be some way in which I can make a difference on that in my own life. Mm -hmm. Good. 
Thank you, Kavita. Um, Nick, let me ask you, um, as I mentioned before, many of us have been really incredibly moved and often shocked um, by the stories that you um, have been sharing with us of your travels in the world in the New York Times. So I wonder if you could tell us, when was the moment when you decided to do this kind of brave reporting? And were there forces or, or those who said, you, you can't tell, write a story about a woman dying in childbirth in Congo, nobody will care. Or tell me, tell us the moment that you decided to go down this track, which has really been quite defining in terms of your, your life's, um, life's work. Well, I mean, I think as with a lot of people, um, what affected me wasn't the kind of intellectual sense of what was happening out there. I mean, I'd read about terrible things happening, but it was really actually going out and seeing them. And when you actually encounter, um, for example, a woman in Cameroon who um, is dying in childbirth because uh, the doctor, basically because she's a rural woman and the doctor doesn't care about her because she is female and rural and her family doesn't particularly care about her because she's female and replaceable. Um, you know, when you see it, this mother of three dying right there in front of you, then that just reshapes you in a way that knowing statistically that 540,000 women are dying a year in childbirth, you know, doesn't, doesn't move you. And so um, it was really a function of um, these kinds of individuals. And then it all kind of got reinforced because then when I cared about these issues so much, then I'd go out and try to find other stories to try to make other readers care. And then I'd get so indignant about those stories that that would kind of keep the... Uh, the cycle going, um, and um, I think, I mean, on the one hand, it is true that readers, frankly, don't care a great deal about these issues. You know, if you ask, I mean, people always get upset that um, the media and television in particular drops the ball on these stories, and it's absolutely true, but if you were executive producer of a uh, TV show and you were trying to deploy your resources and keep up with the ratings, you would know that you can send a uh, camera crew out, for example, to eastern Congo. It'll be dangerous. It'll be incredibly expensive. And your ratings will drop compared to your competitor, who will put a Democrat and a Republican in a room together and have them yell at each other. That is one of the basic underlying problems that we face. And so, you know, I... I try to be as creative as I can in trying to find stories that will resonate with the public, but it is a, um, at the end of the day, it's a pretty hard sell. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Nick. So, Anne, um, in your tenure at UNICEF, uh, you were really noted for bringing significant attention to the linkage between maternal health and child health and the role of women's health in children's health. Um, in the years you were there, I guess it was about six years, five years? Five years. Do you think there was progress made? And, um, and if so, if, if not enough progress, what do you think were the major barriers? Well, never do we make enough progress, but I think progress has been made uh, not just in UNICEF over the last few years, but in the international community, not only in you know having attention to these issues, but also really looking at the solutions. Um, but one of the reasons I cared about so, so much about this issue with regard to the agenda for children, which is UNICEF's agenda, is this inextricable link 
between the health of the mother and the health of the child. So if a pregnant woman starts out um, without proper nutrition um, or doesn't have the right um, micronutrients, the child is likely to be born um, malnourished. Or if she doesn't breastfeed and, and the child doesn't get enough nutrients early on, the child is likely to have long-term consequences, cognitive um, problems throughout his or her life, um, particularly under the age of two. So this whole issue, it's really the period of time from, from uh, pregnancy through age two that determines a child's development. And so this is one reason, this inextricable link between the health of the mother and the health of the child. But also it's very linked to other issues. I mean, we don't very often talk about this problem around the world of children having children as a result of sexual violence, as a result of tradition about early marriage. Um, a woman, a, a girl, under the age of 15 is five times more likely to die in childbirth if um, she's under the age of 15 than if she's over the age of 20. Mm -hmm. These are children. So this is a children's issue from the beginning, and it's a children's issue also from the standpoint of these young women that experience sexual violence, early marriage, and so mm -hmm. forth. So do you think um, progress was made in your, in your tenure at UNICEF? And, and, um, and if not enough, why? Absolutely. I think progress has been made. I think there's a lot more international attention. We started a group among Thryobade, myself, Thryobade being the head of UNFPA, um, myself at UNICEF, Margaret Chan at WHO, and Joy Pumafi, who was at that time running the World Bank Health Programs. You might note they were all women. We started together something we called the H4 to focus on the issues of maternal health. And I think this helped to move the agenda along. We've seen it internationally on the agenda much more, partly because this MDG called MDG5 around maternal health to reduce the number of maternal deaths is one of the indicators by three quarters by the year 2015. The least progress had been made on this because the least amount of attention had been given to it. Good. Thank you, Anne. Um, I appreciate what you're saying, that there has been more attention, but I, I know that when I was 17, and we've just celebrated the 50-year anniversary of the birth control pill, um, it was a really different world, and one could talk in a different way about reproductive health than it is, for example, for my 17-year-old daughter, who is, in a, is, a, is, is really in a very, very different context. So from my perspective, I think it's become very difficult to talk about reproductive health. So Kavita, why do you think that is? Well, it's interesting because I think there's a, it is actually a dilemma that we've actually moved ahead with things that we thought would be able to be taken for granted. And actually, I think the place where we've lost the most ground, ironically, is in the place that, you know, was the leader of work around birth control. So, you know, Margaret Sanger was not an Indian or a Cameroonian or a Ugandan. Margaret Sanger was an American woman, and birth control and the work around um, making it available and a lot of work around contraception um, really was pioneered here in the United States. And yet we now have, in a very strange way, uh, 
particularly fueled, I think, by a sense of religiosity that I also find totally fascinating. Um, a lack of faith in science and a much deeper faith in, uh, in a sort of a literal translation or understanding of the Bible, um, which has moved a cultural agenda in which it has become almost impossible to really talk about women's reproductive rights, much less women's reproductive freedom, much less that dreaded word choice. Um, and uh, instead, I think it has become a conversation which has then trickled down to the rest of the world um, where, you, where you have a real set of contradictions. On the one hand, growing awareness about um, the pressures that Anne just outlined in terms of the pressures on women's lives and children's lives, as well as an understanding around the environmental and ecological pressures that a growing population puts on the planet, combined with this strange set of resurgent religiosity in the West, and particularly in the United States, that has made any conversation about sex um, even about educating people about having sex, um, uh, almost anathema. And, um, you know, I had, I think we also are unable to really talk about it because of a sense of strange prudery mm -hmm. within this society that I also find fascinating. So I think your 17-year-old your and my 16-year-old are up against a lot of really mm -hmm. strange things, even as we've sexualized women in ways that are almost indescribable. <laughs> Um, and, and, and wouldn't have been imaginable for us in the 70s. <laughs> so, Nick, let me turn to you. Do you think this is a third rail issue? I mean, you obviously are walking on the third rail all the time in the stories that you write, but people debate, should you call it sexual reproductive health? Should you call it family planning? Let's, hide, let's call it maternal mortality so pe we don't, people don't think we're talking about abortion. What do you think? Do you think, have we, can we talk about it openly? And if not, how can we reclaim that debate? Um, I mean, I, I think we can. Um, the, um, first of all, just in terms of marketing, reproductive health is the worst phrase you can imagine. Um, and, you know, maternal mortality also, it's just, uh, you know, no corporation trying to come up with a branding would ever come up with the phrase maternal mortality. Um, the, um, I think that, um, you know, that, there are a couple of there have been a couple of reasons why this has become so poisonous, and one was frankly that the uh, family planning community overreached, and in I mean their, their their programs were tainted by coercion in China and to a lesser extent in India, and the UNFPA uh, famously gave one of the, uh, the the organizers of China's uh, coercive family planning program, and I think it was 1983 maybe uh, its its prize. That was a huge mistake, and that. And the abortion wars in the U.S. led the right to move from being the founders of UNFPA, of the uh, this is the UN Population Fund, uh, to being fantastically against it and trying to defund it. And um, the the area in reproductive health that we have precisely lost the most ground on is precisely family planning. I mean, maternal health now there has been real progress over the last couple of years. Uh, Family planning has just been stagnant, and one of the ways, one of the best ways actually to save women's lives in childbirth is to help with family planning so that they will have fewer children. Uh, there are you know, 215 million women around the world who have what is called an unmet need for contraception, that they don't want to have kids in the next couple of years, but they can't get access to uh, family planning. I was in the uh, Republic of Congo, in both Congos recently, and it was astounding to come across these women who were pregnant, and they had never heard of contraception. They just didn't know what it was. And, you know, 
when you think of HIV and STDs as well, you know, th that's, the, that's the area where one needs to focus on. And I think that it is possible to make some headway there. Um, there obviously, and there are more religious right, there are real concerns about it, but that tends to be much more in the headquarters in Washington, for example. The, the evangelical missionaries or, or Catholic priests and nuns in the field are um, often huge believers in contraception. And, you know, I remember one nun, I think in uh, Guatemala, who was busy handing out uh, uh, condoms, was saying, you know, we, we do this, we just don't include this in our reports to the archbishop. <laughs> and I think Kavita noted that at Global Fund for Women, one of the main support supporters has been nuns groups. We've, we've had 40 orders of um, nuns um, who regularly support the Global Fund for Women and, and, and actually share with us, and actually we hear from women's groups on the ground, as, as Nick said, uh, much more pragmatic experiences. Um, nuns who are sisters in, hos in Catholic hospitals where women come because of botched abortions. And in most of Latin America, you're actually not allowed to treat a woman, even if she's hemorrhaging to death on your, on your doorstep because of the laws. Uh, nuns will just turn a, as, you know, a wink and a nod and make sure you know, they put life first in the, in the, in the truest sense of that word. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because I think we, we make generalizations about the faith community, and in fact, there are far more nuanced understandings of what that faith community actually does on the ground. And, and you could look at a lot of women's rights groups who have seen, um, you know, both missionaries and uh, evangelical and Catholic um, really be on their side um, in ways that I think we don't certainly make it to the bishop's reports. Mm -hmm. We so, should just ask any archbishops who may be right. present, please, not to <laughs> include this in your reports to the Pope. Yes, um, right. Don't tell. Um, and is this a mainstream issue, then? Is, is, uh, is reproductive health and family planning, is it central? You've talked about its importance in other sectors. Is it central to development? Um, we've mentioned this uh, wonderful statistician named Hans Rosling, who has a set of statistics that shows how investing in reproductive health changes um, and has economic development and other indicators in Thailand, for example, when um, uh, began to uh, invest in reproductive health. Do you think it's mainstream in the most literal sense of the world, word? Well, I think um, in some countries, as Nick pointed out, it's certainly not mainstream because it's not even available and women don't even know about it. I, I do believe that one of the things that has helped get some of these issues of maternal health on the agenda is the pandemic of HIV and AIDS. And I say that because one of the, the things that the AIDS money, whether it be at PEPFAR or the Global Fund, has really targeted is mother-to-child transmission. So this means that women get access to reproductive health services and they get... They get um, and you know, during their pregnancies, they get tested and they get drugs to prevent that transmission from mother to child. Now, in some countries, up until about two years ago in South Africa, you had to go different places for these services, which was absolutely ridiculous. But that now has changed with the new government as well. So I think AIDS has been one thing along with this greater attention and the focus, as I said before, on the fact that it's an MDG where no progress was really being made. There's also a growing debate going on about, we've kind of put the issue of population control over here, and it ties in with the whole issue of climate change, 
Some will talk about population control, others won't. But if you look at where populations are the greatest in terms of the number of children, it's often in these places where societies are still practicing things like early marriage. The country with the lowest median age in the world happens to be a country that's well represented here today, and that's Uganda. The, the median age in Uganda is 15. Compare that to the median age in Japan at over 44, and on average in the world, it's 28. Niger, it's 15.7. I mean, there's, so if we want to look at population, we have to look at things that Nick often talks about. Women, are they forced into early marriage? They're denied the opportunity to continue their education, so they have get married earlier, have children earlier. And this begins to impact the population, which then impacts all of these youth that have no jobs, that then creates all kinds of other economic uh, difficulties for these countries that are really trying to deal with some of the issues of poverty. And so I think we have to see the linkages among so many of these issues. Kavita, there was a recently an uh, op-ed that you wrote on um, what family planning has to do with climate change. Can you discuss that? Um, well, I, I think, the, as Anne said, I think there is growing awareness around the fact that um, some of the issues that we as progressives were very nervous around, um, the conversation around uh, whether, in fact, um, access to family planning was just another version of eugenics in a way. You know, some people are supposed to have more children and other people are not. And, and I think it's important to put that on the table because the inequalities in the world and the power relations in the world are such that um, the West has been the dominant power socially, economically, politically, and militarily for the last some 500 years. And most of the so-called developing world only got its independence from colonialism as recently as 60 years ago. So this discussion around climate change also falls in to that same north-south dilemma on so many other issues. So, you know, when the, when the G8 countries say, you guys need to cut your emissions to China and India, and India and China say, well, you were the guys who, you know, made this mess in the first place, now we want to be able to do it. That same conversation happens around population. And then it gets further complicated by the fact that there is also currently a whole agenda of, oh, the West wants to come in and free our women. And I, I say that again very honestly. One of the things that makes it most difficult for grassroots women's organizations in the 170 countries where the Global Fund supports um, women's access to equal rights, um, even in, in the, as well as in the area of reproductive rights, um, is that this is often tainted with the sort of Western imperialism brush. So you want us to have fewer children, why? There must be an agenda behind that. And actually, the other problem is that this conversation about climate change, environment, and population doesn't include, and Manoj and I were, recent, were just in a conversation about what is sustainable capitalism. It has not so far included a conversation about consumption. And the harsh and unpleasant truth to hear is that every American in this room and the many of us who are like Americans in other parts of the world, and Thomas Friedman has called us the Americas in other countries, we consume 40 times that of a Bangladeshi. So actually, technically, the people who should be having less children are the people in the West because our, our pressure on the world 
in terms of the consumption of resources is so much higher. And so, you know, it's a, it's a delicate, that dance is a delicate balance. At the same time, what Nick is saying is absolutely true. If you talk to women in the developing world, they want to have control over their own childbearing and they don't have that access and it's a hugely unmet need. Um, and it's playing into all kinds of culture wars um, that are really difficult for us to deal with. To what extent do you think the issues around abortion have really influenced our, uh, where we are at this moment in this debate? And there are many in the room who are in a position, I think, to move this issue and are constantly working on this issue. So what would be the advice of some of the people on the panel um, to this question of how one can not demonize um, it in the way that it's become? I mean, it's been, uh, abortion has been just catastrophic for, um, I mean, every element of the picture. I mean, one, um, one aspect is that one of the reasons for maternal mortality is indeed uh, botched abortions. Um, but beyond that, the whole abortion debates made all of reproductive health completely radioactive to the point that the Bush administration didn't want the phrase reproductive health included in, in communiques. Um, I think that, um, and it, so it tainted maternal health, I mean, just anything in the picture. Um, I do think that in some ways new technologies are actually going to change the picture a little bit. There's some fascinating work on new contraceptives going on. There is a, a, a vaginal ring that is being tested now that would last a year um, that uh, a woman's partner would not be aware of, uh, you know, potentially a huge improvement, and, and several countries, including India, are now um, pioneering medical abortions uh, using drugs like misoprostol, where a woman can take this in the first trimester, and it essentially induces an abortion. And uh, she can um, you know, take it. It's very cheap. It's about a dollar uh, a dose. And in the first trimester, it essentially obviates the need for a surgical abortion. And even if you show up at the hospital, it looks like it's just a, a, a miscarriage. And um, so in um, countries that have anti-abortion laws, you're not going to get then dragged off to prison. So, you know, I, I think that things like that are going to completely change uh, at some point. Right now, misoprostol is not easily obtainable in, uh, I, I, in some of my country, my recent travels, I've been asking, you know, at a pharmacy, can you actually get it? And it has other, it has non-abortion uses, by the way. It's, it's used against ulcers, and it's used to prevent hemorrhages uh, postpartum. Um, so it's, you can't just keep it out. Um, and I think it's going to, I think it's going to end a lot of these abortion wars because somebody isn't going to go to an abortion clinic, at least in the first trimester. They're just going to go to the pharmacist and ask for some misoprostol. Um, Anne, do you want to comment on this question, on, on the role of, of, um, of abortion in demonizing the whole range of issues around women's health, and in particular, you know, being a former head of a, of a major UN agency during a time when the, the U.S. was retreating so much from support of these issues? Well, I think, I mean, again, it's, it's driven largely by the interest groups that make it so difficult. I mean, I think everybody agrees that to deny women access to basic health services is just, it's wrong. It continues poverty. It denies women of their rights. Um, you know, this should not be tolerated. And too many women are, I mean, we talk about how many women die, but 
I mean, I think one of the very important points, and Cheryl Wodan made it yesterday, is that for every of these, every one of these women who die, 20 more have serious injury like fistula. So the, that, the big number is the women who really have serious complications. And I think we've let the debate too often be controlled by those talking about abortion who equate it with reproductive rights instead of talking about the real human stories of people who were denied access to health care, basic care that anybody in the United States would get, you know, walking in off the street. And I, it, it, I think we just have to reframe the debate to talk about the human element. If I could add, Peggy, I think um, Justice Ginsburg put it so beautifully and clearly in her words yesterday when she reminded us that um, it's not just in the developing world, in the so-called developing world. The people who will suffer most when abortion becomes illegal are poor women in this country as well. And I think that's profoundly important for us to realize because there is an inbuilt inequality around health that we know of already. So basic health care, these women don't have access to even in this, the most wealthy of all developed nations. So if you make that even worse by creating an environment in which there will be a recourse to illegal and unsafe abortions until such time as we have access to these other options, and I think, um, Nick, we will probably find the same pushback as we did around the um, you know, morning after pill um, that, has, that has existed in the United States. So I don't think the culture wars are not going to change overnight. And I think that's a place where all of us need to be playing a role. Um, the reason abortions need to be safe and legal is not, so no, is not so more women can have abortions. It's to diminish the need for women to have abortions uh, and to ensure that maternal mortality is actually, um, you know, uh, something that we look at as a problem of the past and not as, not as something that we're dealing with as a major cause, as, as I think Nick and Chris uh, and Cheryl said yesterday, um, you know, more people die than in wars. I mean, so just as in the same way as, you know, we have the numbers of Iraq war veterans who actually died in the war, but the numbers of wounded are so much higher. It's the exact same point. And to Anne's point, the numbers of women who are wounded in, in, in giving birth, uh, no different than, you know, I just finished reading Anna Karenina, and Tolstoy talks about this in 1875 um, and, and how women experience that pain of childbirth. So um, some of us were lucky enough to be at the State Department when uh, Secretary Clinton um, made a statement about the U.S. government's support for reproductive health. And President Obama has made women's health a centerpiece and a return to sexual and reproductive health in a major new $63 billion initiative called the Global Health Initiative. Um, do you think it'll make a difference that the U.S. Is, is taking a different position? What do you think, Nick? Oh, I mean, it definitely makes a... A, a difference. I mean, there's there's no question that uh, the Bush years were a real a huge setback. Um, but I also think it's important. To, I mean, Anne's point earlier about everything is connected, and nowhere is that more true than the case of reproductive health. Um, it, it may well be that the most, uh, if you're if you're trying to think about uh, how you impact fertility in a society, that the most effective contraceptive is not the pill. Uh, it's it's girls' education. And the impact on introducing girls' education in an area is, uh, is just phenomenal. But um, 
and you know, there's so many other aspects of this, but at least to get these issues on the table, and I think also to end kind of the squeamishness that we have about it, one of the things that was striking with AIDS was that millions of people died because we couldn't talk openly about sex. And I think that we're making real progress, we in the U.S., and that a lot of other countries are um, as well. I also think that there is more rigor in aid and interventions as a whole, and we're getting a better understanding of what works. And, for example, um, there are some really interesting studies about the most cost-effective ways of reducing um, HIV transmission to high school girls in South Africa. And they tested various measures on a randomized basis. It was a very, very robust, well-done experiment. And um, a lot of the things you might have sort of thought would be most effective weren't. The two most cost-effective interventions to reduce both pregnancy and HIV transmission to these high school girls were second most effective was um, giving them uh, a high school, giving the school uniforms, uh, which cost about $15 over 18 months and meant that they were more likely to stay in school and less likely than to get pregnant or HIV. And the most cost-effective of all was a brief presentation to uh, these girls warning them against sugar daddies and the danger of getting HIV from a sugar daddy. And the upshot was that they didn't have any less sex than they had before, but he had, they had it with boys their own age who were more likely to practice safe sex. And uh, you know, they're, I think we're getting shrewder about how to bring about change. Okay, wonderful. So um, lest we uh, fall prey to what you felt about your book, that it was maybe too sad or too dispiriting, can I ask, um, Anne, what, where's the hope in this story right now? Where's the promise? What do you... What do you see as something we can get our heads around well, I think, to take us forward? <clears throat> I think one of the countries where, there, where I've seen in my field visits the most hope is Mozambique. Mozambique has put this issue on the agenda front and center. They've encouraged women uh, to get um, health services when they get pregnant, to have their deliveries in health centers, and they have birth control available in those health centers so that, you know, once you deliver or in between, you can have the sort of whole package. This is one of the countries, even though it has uh, a double-digit incidence of HIV-AIDS, it's one of the countries where maternal mortality has actually come down. And so it's also a country where they have been much less rigorous about the definition of what healthcare workers can do. So they have allowed midwives, for example, to get additional training on emergency obstetrics and for some even to perform C-sections. I don't think there's anywhere else in the world where this is happening. So when I look at an example of hope, I look at Mozambique. Great. So I'd like to open it up to questions. We have such a wonderful, rich group here today, and I want to leave as much time as we can for that. So if you could just make your way to the standing room. Seth, I see you're first in line, which is terrific. Um, and you can just line up behind Seth. And if you could just speak into the microphone, tell us your name and, and who you're with, if you'd like. Um, and uh, we'll, you can direct it to a specific panelist or as you wish. Seth Berkeley, International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, and thank you all. Uh, like Nick and like all of you, I'm really angry about this stuff. And um, I wanted to just say a couple of words about hypocrisy and then ask a question. So um, it's interesting. On the, the issue of, of what's the role of abortion, one could make an argument that people withheld contraception actually increased the number of abortions more than anything else. So are the lead 
abortionist. Nick, I believe you wrote this in the Times about the Catholic Church um, excommunicating. A, maybe you can tell that story because you'll tell it better than me. But um, the thing that gets me angry, it isn't just abortion. So one of the things that's happened in the, in the church is that the use of condoms, which of course is condoned, is not only condoned for reproduction, but it's condoned for people who can transmit infectious diseases. And so in a case where you have a known Catholic family with a, a male or a female who's infected and the other one not, a discordant couple, at the end, they are told they are not allowed to use condoms. They can use the rhythm method as a contraception, but they can't use it for protection. So my question to you is, what's the role in science of all of this, and how do we get people to think about it? Um, we ran a campaign of abstinence only when we knew the data showed that it didn't work. And again, this led to large numbers of infections, large num numbers of deaths, and unwanted pregnancies. So how are we going to get science back in the equation? Who's going to take on these issues? And Nick, if you could tell that story maybe for great. everybody, I think it would be great. Good. Um, let me take two questions That's at a time idea. since yeah. we have such a great yeah. group. We don't want them to stand too long. Please idea. come to the microphone and if you can remember Shelley, the Shelley Porges with the State Department Global Women's Business Initiative. Um, earlier today there was um, a conversation around women driving the global economy. And the one notable point that was made was that for we've had data for over two decades about the you know the, the notion of investing in women and the multiplier effects that that has on economies and on the populations and all the other great benefits. I wonder here you, you talked uh, about reframing this conversation, and yet I believe we've talked about this conversation for a rather long time. Although you guys have done a phenomenal job of really heightening it, mm -hmm. but rather long time in terms of you know, morality, women's rights, you know, women's issues. And yet, until we frame the women's issues as an economic matter, um, it seems like we haven't been getting much action. Now that we start talking about it and as a matter of economic prosperity for these countries, all of a sudden, there actually are even men, not, you know, President Kappa, you know, of course, include as leadership, but men saying, yeah, this is a good thing to do for us. How can we, is there a role here for us to reframe this in terms of, because of course there are massive economic impacts on, uh, for everything you're talking about. Can we reframe it so that we can, you know, accelerate attention to, this to these very important issues? Because I fear that if we continue to frame it in terms of, you know, women's issues, health issues, whatever else you want, children's issues, it just simply doesn't get on the mainstream agenda that we need to get it on. Thank you for those two questions. Let me um, turn to the panelists to respond to those two. So before Nick tells his question, Seth, I, uh, tells his story, I'll, I'll add mine. I was in Guatemala uh, last, last year um, for the Nobel Women's Initiative meeting in Antigua, and a couple of Guatemalan women's groups um, had me watch a um, video of an ad that has been screened in Guatemala with one of their senior bishops holding up a packet of condoms um, and crossing out the word condoms on it and writing the word bullets in Spanish on it and saying uh, to, to choose to use these is the same as taking the life of a child, of an unborn child with a bullet. Um, I, I, I share that just to say that I think um, we, have, um, we have a lot that we're up against, and, and I think um, with, with the conversation being one, you talked about hypocrisy, what I find very difficult is we talk about harmful traditional practices, which, which we mean you know horrific things like stoning and adultery and early marriage and uh, you know FGM, female genital cutting, 
um, in other countries, but we're not willing to really take a look at the harmful traditional beliefs that are so prevalent in this country where actually more than 60% of Americans say that they um, uh, believe in religion over science. So those are the statistics. Thank you, Anna. Jump in on. The, uh, the story that you mentioned, um, it, uh, this is a nun who was um, really a remarkable woman in, in Phoenix, a uh, hospital administrator, really spent her career uh, doing extraordinary work. Everybody I spoke to said she's essentially a saint. And she was on the, and, the, and really the conscience of this Catholic hospital in Phoenix, uh, Sister Margaret. And she, um, there was a woman uh, who uh, came in pregnant with a pulmonary condition that uh, on average leads to the mother's death in about half of cases if the pregnancy continues. In this case, it was particularly severe, and the doctors told me that if she continued the pregnancy, it was essentially a certainty that she would die. This went uh, before the ethical committee. Sister Margaret was on that committee. They agreed that uh, uh, she should get a procedure which would end, which would terminate that pregnancy. The uh, Archbishop of Phoenix, who is somebody who had essentially spent his entire career in the Vatican hierarchy, uh, heard about this and kind of went nuts and uh, the upshot was that uh, Sister Margaret was, re- was removed from her position, uh, and she was excommunicated. And, you know, what struck me is you look at Sister Margaret's CV, her whole career doing selfless, altruistic activities on behalf of others, and then you look at this archbishop's CV, essentially climbing up the Vatican hierarchy, you know, which one looks a little more like Jesus Christ? You know, <laughs> uh, it was pretty telling. Um, and the larger point, I think, is that I, I think we too often sort of glibly think that the problem is the Catholic Church. And the problem, it seems to me, is the Vatican. And the Catholic Church goes far beyond that, as we've sort of alluded to. Um, there's no question that, it seems to me, that the Vatican's hostility to condoms in every form, as you say, both uh, as a measure to prevent HIV transmission and as a measure for uh, birth control, has been catastrophic in Africa and in Latin America. Uh, El Salvador has a archbishop who is particularly conservative, particularly close ties to uh, to the Vatican, and he uh, was able to push through legislation so that now all condoms sold in El Salvador carry a warning essentially saying that condoms don't work. Uh, and this in a country where I believe uh, 40% of, something in the order of 40% of uh, females in their first, um, their first sexual encounter do not use any form of, of birth control. Um, so, you know, there there is a fundamental challenge there and the 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 only the only other side of it is that so many catholic hospitals catholic missions um, um clergy and laity are you know implementing their own policies which have nothing to do with the vatican's policy okay. um let me take a few questions so we make sure we get them there i know there was can, a can, few can i just answer the question yeah. about reframing the debate because i don't think anybody really addressed that and i think it's an important question, one that, <clears throat> you know, I think that the whole issue of women and girls, it's on the track here at Aspen. It's ju- it was on the track at Clinton Global. It's been on the track at the World Economic Forum. Very it's, it's you know, 
Women and girls are hot, and so is maternal health. They're not being connected as well as they could be. But the fact of the matter is, this whole issue of gender and women and girls is on the agenda in a much bigger way, and I think we need to bring the issues of, of maternal health and the women and girls together. But it does need, as was suggested, and I, I came away from that panel this morning that you were attending with the same kind of reaction, and that is, how do we tie these great economic arguments and data together with all of these other things we're talking about, about women and girls and maternal health? They have to be linked because the economics are clearly there to invest in women and girls, that women and girls, I mean, that women given microcredit, women given education, it all makes a huge and tremendous difference in poverty alleviation and in uh, the ability of, of, of people to have economic development and therefore helps overall business. Thank you, Anne. Good. Let's take two more questions. The woman here and, and Hi, my, my friend Hi, my name Francis. is Tricia Nichols, and despite the distressing news that we're receiving from you, I have to mention in my 35 years of working in family planning, primarily in Latin America, um, what you're saying I uh, agree with exists, but it's not congruent with my experience of working uh, for the last number of years with the international arm of Planned Parenthood. And what uh, Planned Parenthood is doing in Latin America, and I've gone out to these sites down the Amazon, Peru, uh, Ecuador, Guatemala, they're helping women in country start their own NGOs. They're giving them medical training and business training to provide family planning and, and actually the full spectrum of reproductive health to women. And we can't get services out fast enough to the rural areas in particular that have a, there's a crying need, the women want it. The very areas where in the last 15 years, 20% of the remaining forests in Latin America have been taken out uh, due to subsistence farming. So I think there are a lot of um, bright stars you know, in the picture that you're painting. And um, if groups, perhaps some of the, those like that you represent, Cavita, certainly with the International Arm of Planned Parenthood, simply can't bring in funding fast enough to respond to the need of the women in towns they've identified who are just waiting to receive services. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for that comment. Francis, Dr. Francis Omaswa, just uh, from Uganda. I'm from Uganda. And uh, Uganda has been mentioned twice, I think, in the, in the discussion so far. Um, I would like to uh, 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 carry on uh, where the last speaker uh, just uh, uh, stopped to uh, uh, put uh, optimism in the situation as uh, I see it. Um, the climate of opinion in favor of supporting uh, MDG 4 and 5 is fairly strong. The last uh, G8 meeting, the African Union Heads of State Summit will take place in Uganda in two weeks' time, and the key agenda of that summit is this topic. So uh, we've come a long way, but what could be the biggest stricture now is just resources for primary health care to get cesarean sections available costs a lot more money than we imagine. And a lot of our health systems with a $10 per capita expenditure per annum is not going to deliver the results that we desire. How can we get more resources 
into primary health care systems in developing countries. Because if that money is there, I think it would enable a lot of the constraints that we are talking about now to be addressed. Mm -hmm. In a country like ours, for example, these issues about um, uh, condoms, abortion, are not on because we reached that consensus a long time ago. And that probably applies to many other countries. So uh, uh, my plea would be uh, to get to advocate for more resources for primary health care and for maternal and child health, and then to use some of those resources to build capacity inside the country, inside the countries at uh, uh, rural levels, at community level, to deliver the technologies that exist and are not accessible to these communities, mainly because they don't have the money to, to, to make them available. Good, thank you, Francis. Um, Kita, uh, Kavita wants to respond, and then I'll take another question so we can make sure. Francis, I just want to say that I think um, part of that responsibility for allocation of resources lies with those of us in the developing world ourselves. Um, I'm constantly stunned. I grew up in a household where my mother and father had endless arguments. Uh, my father was in the Indian uh, Navy, and my mother was an educationist, um, about the amount of money India seemed to find available to invest in nuclear weapons, in new submarines, in new guns, in F-16s, and still does. It has um, increased its military expenditure in the last five years by a significant percentage. That same, that same decision, to me, is very similar to what Nick and Cheryl were talking about, the decisions at an individual family level in which men are making decisions to spend money on gambling or alcohol or um, and while women are making those investments in the health of their children and the education of their children. Until we, as developing country nations, begin to hold our own governments accountable for their choice of expenditures, and I have been very proud to support women's organizations doing work on budgets, on national budgets, um, to really hold um, the feet of governments to the fire. We will not be able to keep going to the West without begging bowls and saying we don't have the resources. And I would say the West has a responsibility. You come to us and sell us your military uh, weapons with no problems. Before you come selling us those weapons, sit down and talk to the governments in our countries and ask how much percentage of your uh, uh, of your GDP is going into, of your annual budget is going into health, is going into the social sector. Don't give us your World Bank loans without having that conversation. Great. Thank you, Kavita. Do you want to respond quickly and then let's go? Yeah. If I can. I mean, realistically, I mean, there are obviously going to be huge needs for all kinds of. Uh, uh, you know, health needs, everything else in the coming years. Realistically, you look in the U.S. at the fiscal situation, at the public mood, same in Europe, then I think it's going to be an incredibly hard sell to get more resources from the West. Now, I think it's important for advocates to make that push, but I, uh, I would be leery of expecting very much. I think one argument that may have a little more resonance than the humanitarian one is the security one. And you know, if you think that this year we're going to spend about $100 billion in Afghanistan uh, on, on troops uh, to try to bring security there, then there is a certain amount of evidence that 
one thing that in a longer term does bring more security to an area is educating girls. Another is indeed family planning because that reduces this youth cohort, this young men age 15 to 24 who were the strongest correlate to civil conflict and terrorism. And I think that it's important not to cede the security ground but to argue that uh, you, know, you buy security not only with missiles and fighter planes but also with um, condoms and the pill and schools for girls. Thank you. And I'm going to turn to you next for the next one. Okay, let's take the two more questions here because we're coming close to the end. I'll be very brief. Um, I'm Lauren Cobb from the University of Colorado. I was just in El Salvador, and I, I want to speak up for El Salvador a little bit. I know about that archbishop, but the total fertility rate in El Salvador has been plunging. And uh, if you look at a graph of fertility against gross domestic product, um, there is a clear threshold level. And as soon as countries get their fertility rate down below three, the economy booms. El Salvador is one of the countries right on the cusp. I predict within five or 10 years, their economy is really going to take off because women are moving into the labor force, uh, girls are being educated, fertility is down, even though it's a highly dense country and it has all sorts of problems, it's going to be one of the great success stories of the next 10 years. Thanks. Thank you for sharing that. We were actually talking about that at our breakfast meeting. So please, yeah. Yeah. Put the microphone down. Um, my name is Mariana Iskander. I actually work for Planned Parenthood here in the States and uh, just wanted to put a plug. If anybody's here Sunday night, we're hosting an event at the Limelight Lodge and you can learn about our work in Guatemala. But my question... Um, Really, to one, thank you, I think, for raising the complexity of the issues in exactly the right way. There's one piece of the conversation that really hasn't been surfaced, so it's a comment followed by a question, which is uh, the role of advocacy and, in particular, uh, electoral politics in understanding how to make progress on some of these issues. I think Planned Parenthood struggles with the very real tension of being a service provider and an advocate, and that is a hard thing to do in a single organization. But I would I would argue that our, our most important work is through our action fund and, and getting people to understand the amount of work we need to do in electing officials. And Hillary Clinton, I just... I can tell you that even though there is much work to be done with the Obama administration, it is like night and day from the eight years of the Bush administration to at least having the issues on the table for conversation. And so I just wondered if, if you all would comment on that. And I, it's a, it is a fairly U.S.-specific question in the sense of the role that the United States needs to play on the advocacy front, but that we, we really get to brass tacks and talk about what electoral politics and... and, and the, the health care reform debate, I think, in my mind, shows us how much work we have left to do with our elected officials in understanding the range of women's health issues and, and frankly, that women's health is health care, which I think we took two steps back and one step forward in the health reform bill. Um, and and if, if elected officials don't get this, I'm not sure that a lot of the other things that we're talking about today will move as rapidly. Yeah. Thank you for that question. And um, let me turn to you for your response to that, and then let me pose a, take the chair's prerogative to pose a question to the panelists in, um, in closing our session today, which is that, you know, yesterday Bill Gates was here. He may still be here. And so I would pose to the panel if there was one thing you could say to him in, in, that he could invest in around this issue, not he personally, although it is sort of him personally, the foundation, what would it be? So, Andy, do you want to respond to that last question and then kick us off with this last 
question? Um, I, I think, first of all, congratulations to Planned Parenthood on the tremendous work they do in advocacy around these issues. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. There needs to be continued advocacy in this country, but I would argue that we can't limit this conversation to this country. That unless, um, and we were talking about this in a panel I was on the, two nights ago, but it really makes a difference if there are women in parliaments. We've used the example several times this week of Rwanda where now over 50% of the parliament is women. What that's meant is that they've addressed the issue of sexual violence, uh, enforcement of, of, of the laws that they're implementing, of property rights, and healthcare. I of health care. So this has to be an advocacy issue in every country, not just in the United States. Um, now, let me just say, with regard to the Bill Gates issue, I want to come back a little bit to this issue of the health systems approach and the healthcare system and where's the funding. I think one of the things that's happening today in global health is that the debate is turning from this kind of disease-specific and condition-specific funding, whether you fund AIDS and malaria and polio and measles to, and, and, and maternal health, to how do you build sustainable healthcare systems instead of these one-shot campaigns on vaccinations and so forth. So when we talk about funding, I think we also have to talk about efficiency and what does the system look like. And this is what I would tell Bill Gates, and I think he's getting this, by the way, is that, is that the overall discussion needs to look at the health systems, how to make them sustainable, how to train healthcare workers, how to use mHealth and mobile phones, um, how to use telemedicine, how to use, I mean, all of these things that are going to mapping health systems that are going to make health systems more efficient. I think, and the Gates Foundation, I think, is doing tremendous work in another area that nobody's funding, and that is uh, the development of new vaccines for things like AIDS and malaria. So I, I just wanted to kind of answer that previous question as well. Great, thank you, and that's an important point. Uh, Nick, you want to talk to Bill Gates? Tell them something. Yeah, so Bill, my, uh, <laughs> um, I really agree with you that, uh, you know, there's a tendency if you have a spare billion dollars to invest it in delivery of services. Uh, maybe this reflects my bias coming from the communications world, but I'm a huge believer that uh, in the humanitarian world, investment in advocacy and, if you will, marketing is hugely underfunded, and you get more bang for the buck doing that than you do other areas. That if you, know, if you look at areas that have been uh, funded, that where there's been a real transformation, it's been things like AIDS. And why? Well, because there is a huge advocacy effort uh, on AIDS. And more recently, some clever people figured out how to market malaria and slice and dice it into bed nets. And so now you have high school kids all around the country and the world raising money for bed nets. And the result is that a lot fewer people die of malaria. And it, um, you know, as a journalist, I get pitches all the time from corporations and from humanitarians. Humanitarians are awful at marketing. <laughs> awful. And it pains me because between Coke and Pepsi, it doesn't, you know, they invest zillions in marketing, and it doesn't matter to the world one whit whether I drink a Pepsi or a Coke. It matters so much whether we can get vaccines out there, whether we can educate kids. And the 
tendency in the humanitarian world to shrink and to flinch at the idea of marketing a good cause, I think means that these fantastic causes that are so deserving of resources don't get them adequately. And so, Bill, my advice, focus on marketing great causes, and that will indeed get more bang for the buck than anything else. Thank you, Nick. Kavita, you're sitting down with Bill, and, and uh, you have his undivided attention. Bill, now that Nick's persuaded you to give a million dollars to the communications budget of the Global Fund for Women, a billion dollars, <laughs> um, we're really excited about that. And, um, but we also think, as Anne said, that um, doing advocacy is incredibly important also in places around the world. So although your research on global health and work on global development is very powerful, having organized, mobilized, and extremely effective advocates in civil society who are women themselves. And this is very important, Bill, because a lot of the work that the Rockefeller Foundation and the Gates Foundation and other foundations do say they are for benefit of women, but rarely go to women. And so what I would love to see is a major investment of the foundation in women-led organizations around the world. And I know some great organizations that can help you get it to women on the ground. So I hope you you, consider that. Wonderful. So um, let me just just say uh, I appreciate so much everyone coming to this session. We know we didn't have a big sign out there, so we're trying to attract group. I would also especially like to thank the gender balance in this room. Thank you for coming and joining with us, you brave souls. And um, I would also like to just say uh, to Justice Ginsburg, you really honor us with your presence. Thank you for choosing to come to this session. It matters to us. And let me uh, thank um, the three heroes that I've had the pleasure of speaking with today, Kavita uh, and Nicholas and Anne. Thank you so much for all you do for women all over the world. Thank you.